Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. Today, we're going to ask a question that seemingly has an obvious answer, but perhaps on closer inspection, it is important to ask in our modern times, do we need the Bill of Rights? Now, before we get into that, I want to introduce a little micro-segment to our show. Uh, I'm calling it the, the random question of the episode, okay? So, Christian Cody, I've got a question for you. What is one other profession that you would have done if you weren't lawyers? Oh. Oh, wow. Well, I can tell you that when I was 12, I was absolutely convinced I should be an accountant, which was about the worst idea of my life. So I'm very horrible at math, which I eventually figured out. So a teacher is actually the only other thing I seriously considered. Okay. We like, we like to add the potential ranks of teachers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for me, I feel like the likelihood is that I would have gone into something automotive. But as I said last episode or two episodes ago, my father would have literally killed me if that happened. Uh, in which case, I, yeah, I wouldn't have to worry about working. Um, my background before law school was actually in classics and philosophy. So I probably would have gone into something related to classical studies, which eventually... You 100% me, would have been a college professor because that's about the only thing I could have done. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I actually worked in a museum while I was in college and thoroughly enjoyed it it was aside from being the wrong period in roman history <laughs> it focused mostly on roman empire but yeah um i really did enjoy working in a museum so and actually before i got into uh constitutional law i thought i was going to deal with international antiquities that was my main focus in law school really wow. yeah. almost almost like anthropology or just like history straight up like cultural property law. So I focused Ooh. my early writings were dealing with um, the legalities of international treaties around ancient coinage and some uh, like a, the European union has a program dealing with how they recover uh, stolen antiquities from other European union countries. Super interesting for that me is. and two other people in the world. That really <laughs> is interesting. So I was just, yeah. I was I bound what... for some sort of weird profession, no matter what. <laughs> Is law a weird profession? It seems so standard anymore, but I mean, is it weird? Is it just like the weird thing to do? Like, have you, what's the strangest thing that you've come across being lawyers? Uh, that's protected information for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Safe answer. Like confidentiality. Yeah. Uh, I don't think law is a weird profession, but I mean, despite the fact that you have two attorneys that specialize in constitutional law with you, I think that's pretty rare. Hmm. Well, we do have weird questions, don't we? 
<laughs> what would you have been, Stanton, if not what, a teacher? What would I have been? What would yeah. I have been? I mean, I you know I studied political science so I can go do political science like policy and whatnot. But no, I no, I'm, I'm going to reveal my age here. I graduated it during a presidential election, very recent one, and uh, I was like, nah, screw that. I don't no, that's not at all interesting right now. So I said, screw that. But I'd probably go to policy or uh, I'd probably gone to grad school to do. Um, international affairs foreign policy and then hitched a hitched a ride somewhere into um a think tank or to the state department ultimately that's kind of where i was headed headed for and then i'm like nah i don't like any of this right now this smells bad and so i'm teaching and it doesn't smell nearly as bad in fact it smells quite beautiful it's just no not paying nearly as well but no here we are <laughs> I like that all of our descriptions of where we might have been is exactly what we're doing in our free time with this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we're all like, oh, we might be some sort of obscure educator or worked in policy or looked at like founding era history. We're like, wait a minute, that's what we're doing in our spare time now. <laughs> you know, that's I, I love I love doing the show with you guys. This is this is particularly something I look forward to um, doing every week or so. Um, before we move on, we I. Now, I record um, at my place of work, and we have a little water balloon party, social distance party. So I've got kids running outside. It's wonderful. I love hearing hearing that noise, but you might hear it on, on your audio. So if you hear just some screams and random shouts, I promise you nothing bad is happening. Actually, something quite good is happening. Or it's um, just me giggling in the background because we're talking about more founding era documents. Or, or ancient <laughs> Roman coinage, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll save you guys. Sorry, I got really excited. <laughs> Calm down there, Cody. Calm down. <laughs> okay. So we've got this question, right? We talk about how we do this weird thing with constitutional law. And constitutional law is kind of weird. But one of the questions, and we touched upon this a little bit when we were discussing the um, uh, both the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation, we talked about how having a Bill of Rights certainly does outline what the government can and cannot do with our natural freedom, with our natural rights, our, our liberty. But there's this other question, isn't there? There's this other side to having a written protection of our natural rights. And what is that potentially negative side effect? Oh, is this where I get put on the spot as the resident anti? Hey, I didn't call anyone out. If you feel attacked, that's 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 an internal feeling. <laughs> <laughs> the other side uh, is twofold. Um, there were two kind of groups of people that were concerned about the Constitution. One of those said that basically by giving the government and naming all of these powers of the government, what you've ignored is the powers of the individual. Now, as you will have obviously heard uh, when you listened to our Declaration of Independence episode, there's one callback, um, the power of the individual is the power. It's where all power comes from. It's where the power of government comes from, so on and so forth. But there was a concern that without talking about that power in the Constitution, that there was going to be a problem at some point in the future where government got too big. Um, the other side of that that was concerned about it was concerned that if you have a document that gives, 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 you're going to need to put some bumpers on that. And the Constitution kind of puts some bumpers, 
um, Article One, Section Nine, he said unsuredly, uh, puts some bumpers on Congress, and there's a few other ones in there as well. But essentially, the problem is you just got done drafting this fancy document that gives away a lot of power. What do you do about the power you didn't give away? So what do you do about the power you didn't give away? Like, you know, you're talking about, you know, the Congress already has the power to tax and to you know, levy war and all that. What other powers would Congress not have? Like what powers, what, what powers does Congress not already have that it currently exercises? Well, I mean, I think there's, you know, they'd like to claim they have all the power uh, and they sometimes uh, act like they do, but they can't get it together to you know, <laughs> ask anything very solid. But I think it, it goes to the point that if you, some people were afraid if you define all these rights and all these powers, then anything not included might like to the people might be presumed to be part of government's power. Whereas right now you can legitimately look since with the Bill of Rights inclusion, you can look at the article that defines Congress's duties and say literally their duties should <laughs> be encapsulated within that article right there. And the Bill of Rights giving those powers, they're not giving, but recognizing that those powers belong to the people inherently limited anything Congress could claim in the future. And if they do claim it, then you have the courts to push back on them and say, ah, you took power that wasn't granted you. And, and is, you know, and that's, and that's the way it's supposed to be, right? You know, we, we, we inherently have all these liberties, right? We talked, we talked about the idea of natural rights in episode one, that by just existing, you possess the ability to do what you want, so long as you don't hurt others, very simplified down to the basic essence of it. And then, you know, we, the, you know, regular Joe people, we voluntarily say to each other, hey, what if we had this thing that does things for us? Like, you know, war. All right, let's create a government, okay? And, and, and whatever we give to the government, that's what it has. But if we don't give it to them, then they don't have it. this idea of enumerated powers that we touched on earlier. And that if government tries to take more power, we say, hey, 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 we didn't give that to you. What are you doing, Joe? Back up. And you know, like you said, the courts. But why does this make the Bill of Rights dangerous? I, mean, well, I don't think it does, so I'll let Cody take that. <laughs> <laughs> so there has been a lot of talk, and by a lot, I mean a lot in certain circles, I suppose, <laughs> about this question of, in the modern sense, mm. of by drafting and ratifying this Bill of Rights and putting certain things on paper, it does two things. And this is the argument. I don't know if I buy into it, but I'll, I'll try and give it a fair shake. It does two things. First of all, it says what rights are most important, according to the people. Because if they included it in those 10, nine, really, eight, really, rights that were tacked on to the Constitution, then those are the important rights. And all the other rights are maybe important, but maybe not as important. So it kind of creates a hierarchy of natural rights that exist within the individual that haven't been given to Congress. So that's a problem. Why, why, then, is, why is a hierarchy a problem? So a hierarchy creates a problem because then inevitably what you get is you get a Congress, and this is practically speaking because this is what we see, you have a Congress that will say, well, obviously you have 
you have this right or you don't have this right because it's not specifically enumerated. So you get into this problem of like weird questions on do you have the right to freely conduct business with another individual without a license? That's not in the Bill of Rights. There's nothing in the Bill of Rights that says you have, there's the freedom to associate. So it's the idea of, you know, well, obviously we wouldn't take away your, you know, freedom to speak or to pray. That's obviously protected. We have a First Amendment for that. But, you know, your right to make contracts and whatever. I mean, yeah, you might have that right, but it's it's not really important, is it? It's not not like it's protected by the Bill of Rights. Is that is that the problem of this hiker? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Dead on. Okay. And basically, they oh well. Do so you care so much about what the founders and framers thought? Why didn't they think that was important? And obviously, if they would have thought that it was important, they would have put it in the Bill of Rights, like they did with your ability to speak. Mm. So that's problem one. Problem two is as soon as you get anything down on paper, you've set limits and you've <laughs> you've confined it. So now, and being the the gun lawyer I am. Mm-hmm. What you get is, well, doesn't the Second Amendment say militia in it? Doesn't, doesn't that mean you can only own arms pursuant to militia service? Well, it says keep and bear arms. Does that, what does bear mean? What, what, well, bear in 1770 was commonly talked about when going off to war. So maybe you can only have arms on you when you're going to war. Now you have to reinvent this whole jurisprudence, uh, original textualism, just to figure out what the hell the words mean. Instead of just saying, I don't need a word to tell me that I have the right to own a gun or to own a business. I don't need anyone to tell me that. I know I have that right. But, but the, the word, this is interesting. I had a, a college professor of mine, dear, dear mentor, dear friend of mine. Um, he's a Democrat and you know, I'm okay with that. But uh, he, had, he had these three rules of politics um, that I think are relevant to constitutional law. Um, never say yes when you can nod. Never write it down when you can say yes. Never write it down. and so i feel like this seems to be really applicable here to 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 the to constitutional law don't write down your rights otherwise you set limits to them well and i think just to interject here a little bit i think part of the like cody explains it very well i think part of the issue is that and i can be an i idealistic person many times myself as well but i think a lot of times if you talk about idealism versus realism like Mm -hmm. idealistically everyone would understand what natural rights are no one would need them written down no one would need them defined no one would want government to set limits on you know the freedom of speech and association and religion etc etc um because it would be common sense i mean that's what natural rights are supposed to mean like they're inherent in us we understand them by nature of simply being created a human being but i think unfortunately that's not reality and and when people agree together to form a government and expect that government to do certain things for them as in generally keep the peace through safety and through through things that people may or may not be able to do themselves um and i think that's why our, our founding fathers agreed to form this government they didn't think they could do all these things international trade uh, national security um, trade between the states, all these things, like as individuals, they thought they needed a government to facilitate it. Mm-hmm. If you grant that you need a government to accomplish some things you want in life, it, it, people run government and people who want power often run government. And without those limits, without some sort of words on paper, um, 
that was actually Patrick Henry's fear. I know we've talked about him a number of times. And as small government of a guy as he was, he didn't even want the constitution. If there was going to be a constitution, he's one of the main people who said there will be a Bill of Rights. And he's the one who convinced James Madison to make sure that it got included because he yeah. feared the power government would take. Right. That, that was actually going to be my next question. You know, we talk about natural rights and you know, we, we, we kind of have this fanciful idea that the founding era, the revolutionary era, they understood this philosophical question. Now, of course, we have natural rights. But even someone like Patrick Henry, the most, I don't know, the most libertarian of the founding fathers himself, yeah. uh, even he exactly. was concerned that, no, people are, I love people, but people are dumb. And they're, they're, they're going to forget natural rights really, really fast. And so that is, that is a, a good question, though. If, if the founding era was wanting a written bill of rights, mm -hmm. is it, no, is this idea of, no, is the alternative possible, I guess? Is, is, is not having a bill of rights possible? Well, slash not, prudent. Not, not all the founding era wanted a bill of rights. I sure. mean, there's a, there's a whole faction of federalists that argued against it. I, they thought it was ridiculous to there. Of course, why would we need a bill of rights? We just created a government that is limited to only the words on paper that we gave it. One of those dudes though was Alexander Hamilton. And we know that that man okay. didn't particularly care for whatever, whatever necessary, proper, convenient, and whatever. That's well, basically wanted, what that like, meant to him. A lifetime president, I find. Yeah, so, I, so yeah, his, his ideas were a little out there in some ways. Not I, all of the Federalists were great, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Not all the Anti-Federalists are great either. Cody and I'm on the opposite How did this side. happen? What, how am I on the opposite team of Patrick Henry? This is another first <laughs> How are life. you siding with Hamilton? That's the real question. Okay, I did not do that. Good sir. <laughs> oh, good sir. Okay, so so let's 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 because I, I we we could go back and forth on the what ifs of history. We can talk about the idealism of, of this, but let's 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 look at this practically. What are the pros and cons, practically speaking, in 2020 of having a bill of rights, and the pros and cons in 2020 of not having a bill of rights? So let's start with let's start with having it in 2020. What does that look like? Positive and negative. I mean, I think I'm for the Bill of Rights. I would have supported it back then, I would like to think. Uh, and it certainly, I mean, it makes up probably the majority of constitutional law when you practice it as an attorney it is very centered on the Bill of Rights. And, and, and the reason I like it is because I think, I think were it much more specific than it is, you could run into a lot of trouble with people saying, well, it doesn't say you have this right, so therefore, it means you lost all those rights and you've granted them to government. I think because um, life, liberty, these big words that can mean many things and have a lot of components of natural rights inherent in them, I think if we're going to have a Bill of Rights, which I do support, it needs to be very broad. I mean, and I think our Bill of Rights speech, freedom of speech, like that is broad. And then also to say freedom of association, which is different from speech. So there's a lot to unpack. That's what gets us into trouble is when courts and people of differing views attempt to unpack these words through their own lens, it definitely gets us into trouble. But I think the broad, the breadth of these words also is what has stopped the American government 
from taking as much power as you see in countries all around the world that have nothing resembling a bill of rights at all. All right. So the other side, the, con. <laughs> the, ba- the bad side of having it in 2020, the downside is what you have is basically you have a system of courts today that have created law and a lot of that law is created based on interpretations of words that are on paper. So there's an open question that, you know, today education about natural rights is, is very minimal. Most people don't know that our system was founded on that understanding. A lot of people don't even know what that means. But there's an open question if in 1820 you're still arguing for your natural rights while you're in court, is that still a point of conversation? Is that still necessary? Right, because today when you go to law school, if you go and take constitutional law, you don't learn about the constitution or the founders and framers. You learn about Supreme Court interpretation of Supreme Court's interpretation of the constitution. Right, and when you're preparing to argue before the Supreme Court, you, you're you not looking to the Federalist Papers. You're not looking to, you're barely, you're barely well, looking to the constitution. I mean, you <laughs> should, right? But really you're looking for, okay, how, what is Ginsburg going to react to best? And how do I balance it with what? Mm-hmm. Uh, what Gorsuch is going to say. Okay, so I got these two. So where do I strike the balance to make sure I hit both of their sweet spots? The that beauty of my so... practice, right, is, is I get to start at the founding era, but I do work my way all the way up until yesterday. I mean, when I'm arguing a case dealing with gun rights, you know, I'm arguing from the Second Amendment. I'm arguing from a case that was decided in 2008. Right. Most often. I mean, that's the most persuasive. Mm-hmm. But there's an open question on if you didn't have a bill of rights for 230 years, what does the evolution of law look like? Does ever, is everybody forced to come to an understanding of what individual rights are? Is there a bigger protection on the non enumerated individual rights, right? The, the, the framers included the ninth amendment, but nobody even talks about it. I mean, most people don't even know what the ninth amendment is, but <laughs> why they used it in Roe versus Wade to make it, <laughs> <laughs> Make it mean something it does not mean. <laughs> yeah, but it is it is arguably the most important amendment. I mean, it's what protects literally everything else. Right. Um, so the the problem is the the idea is if we didn't have a bill of rights for two two hundred thirty years shaping interpretive constitutional decisions, and we can, this almost gets into code versus common law, right? Dead on exactly. This, and you know, and for 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 folks who don't quite get what what we're referring to, you know, common law is this idea of understanding precedent, tradition, custom, law over a long period of time, and saying if if a decision was applied to these two people, then a hundred years later, a similar case should have this a, a, a similar outcome. Mm-hmm. Whereas a code is more along the lines of there is a policy for every potential scenario. And if there's a new scenario that comes up, we make a new code to it and the code just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. It, it's, and then Chrissy, you, maybe you can testify to this. I've all, you know, we, I try, you know, when I teach my, my, my gov kids, you know, we're founded on, on a common law tradition. We, you know, we, we have basically an English culture and English legal culture, especially, you know, we, we reach from Blackstone, but at the same time, we, we have a written constitution unlike Great Britain. And so we have this very odd combination, which 
yes, we have judges and justices who, who inflect their own interpretation over, over the ages, yet still referring back to a text, always starting there. What, talk, talk, talk with me. How, how does this relate to having a bill of rights and why I'm, I'm just, I always get, I always just get so confounded that we have this mix between these two systems that seemingly are so opposed to each other. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right, Stan. It's a very interesting dichotomy, and I'd love to hear how you explain it to your kids. If I could, you know, be a fly on the wall in your classroom. But uh, I think I think the best kind of system does mix the two, because I personally would agree with Patrick Henry that having a code only that only defines government and nothing for the bill, nothing for the Bill of Rights can then be interpreted by courts to make sure it's being equally applied to all people. Um, I think you run the risk of power hungry people and even evil people because uh, you see this happening in countries across history where the code was very narrowly defined. People jumped on it and set themselves up and grabbed the power to define that code. I mean, human beings are always looking for definitions. We want to define and find, you know, our place in the power structure. I want and, to define my right of speech. Yeah. And so like, I, I just don't think that having a more limited code <laughs> would really do any different. I just don't. Because even if you look at the original part of the Constitution, it says its purpose is to secure the blessings of liberty. Mm. I mean, what does that mean? Like, people, that's what courts would have then been debating. Well, does this really fall under the category of liberty or a blessing? Or I, I like yeah. that's, the, that's the nature of setting up a government that has a judicial system whose job is to interpret the constitution. Whatever words you give them, um, they're going to interpret. And I think the fewer you give them within reason, I didn't mm. like, you know, the Obamacare, like thousands of page bill, but within reason, <laughs> um, it does put guardrails on them. Or as you just say, define liberty and it's up to you the, then they're going to just go off the, and I didn't directly answer your question about the relation to common law, but I think a mixed system is better. A little bit of common law, a little bit of code. That you use the word guardrails though, because if we're going to keep talking about Patrick Henry, we should remember what he advocated for in the bill of rights, the amendments to the constitution, wasn't this idea that we're going to enumerate individuals rights and whatnot. Patrick Henry wanted the addendum, the amendments, to restrain the government that they just created by its own terms. He took severe issue with the necessary and proper clause, mm -hmm. which is what Congress do, uses to do everything nowadays. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He also took- That one's problematic. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, if I had a, a red pen yes. and a copy of the constitution, not the original. <laughs> um, Don't say that. <laughs> I mean, I think we're all thinking it. Full Nicolas Cage. Um, <laughs> The other thing Patrick Henry took an issue with was standing military in the Constitution, even though the Constitution only allows for there to be a standing military for two years. Obviously, we talked about how they finagled that in our last episode. <laughs> You're the king of that. Just king of right? <laughs> um, he wanted the Bill of Rights, the amendments to focus on cutting back or defining what necessary was, defining what proper was. Mm -hmm. So he was more focused on restraining the Leviathan from itself, not from enumerating individual rights focused on it that way. Because remember, when they first proposed these amendments, these Bill of Rights, it wasn't 
originally going to be appended to the constitution, they were talking right. about interlineating mm -hmm. at times. They were talking about actually going in and editing the text or adding right. it in the article, in the section after the clause that they wanted. It's to not address. just an afterthought. It's integral to the very structure of the, of the document. Exactly. Okay. And let's but remember too, the yeah. anti-federalists were not all high and mighty. The first proposed amendment dealt with pay. <laughs> <laughs> like the 27th amendment yeah yeah the 27th amendment well, was the first and mm -hmm. i tend to think in agreement with you <laughs> i tend to think there's a difference in a discussion of should we generally have had a bill of rights like was that valuable to put guardrails on government and to give some more definition to what what the people could expect to be protected from what they could be expect as their natural rights i think that is one discussion and then saying well had we written the bill of rights or if we were given a red pen to eliminate certain parts that have been greatly misused right what what shouldn't really be in there and i bet you we'd find a lot of common ground on that discussion i think that's fair i think if i'm putting myself in like po like constitution is is accepted almost ratified right because the six mm -hmm. didn't ratify it unless there was the bill of rights if mm -hmm. i'm putting myself in that position I i'm with you let let's get something on paper let's fix some of these errors they did a pretty good job but let's rein it in some instances yeah sure we can name some of the important rights but so it seems and you know th this is a question i have but i think i kind of get the answer from you has the bill of rights too. generally been on the whole, a positive force for liberty or a restraining force on liberty? I, this is the, so this is the problem. This is the same conversation we had with the articles. Mm -hmm. Boom, got all three episodes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem, right? You're playing what if history. Yeah. You know, I don't, I can't imagine what my job would be like if I couldn't talk about the Second Amendment right now. I think all three of us would be toast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows? But then what if, you know, what if people weren't focused on the Bill of Rights and were more focused on all of their individual rights and responsibilities and liberties? What does 200 years of history with people mm -hmm. changing their focus look like? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if we're better off, to be honest. I mean, I think the Constitution could have been a touch better, but that's you know, me looking at a lens 230 years later. I, so here, I couldn't so have done here's a, in 1770. So here's maybe a simpler question. And, and Chrissy, you, 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 you actually gave me inspiration for this. So I'm going to start with you. Ah, okay. Which amendment, which, which Bill of Rights, which amendment in the Bill of Rights do you think is the most dangerous Ooh. to liberty, the most threatening to liberty? Which one would you say this one kind of sours the deal almost if there is one let me not hmm. be that is actually a very hard question um wow i'll be honest with you i don't necessarily think there is a specific amendment in the first 10 that i would take out or that is super dangerous mm -hmm. i i think how the courts have interpreted certain ones is extremely dangerous so could more definition you know added to that when it was written which i don't think you know how could they have foreseen that um what the where the courts would go in the 1900s um so i don't, I don't really think i could pick an amendment that is dangerous in the bill of rights but courts interpretations of them 
uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of that. Uh, what I find interesting too, I'll say, this goes also a little bit of criticism of the courts, um, and I guess people bringing lawsuits, but you'll see the First Amendment, freedom of speech and freedom of religion, always talked about, and no government establishment of religion, always talked about. Um, some terrible tests set out by courts, some amazing tests set out by courts. Right. But freedom of association is very underdeveloped. Um, and so you'll see that throughout all these amendments. Uh, some of them, they're, they're underdeveloped. And would we have more recognition of what natural rights really mean if some of those were better developed by courts or would we have less freedom because the courts could play in that area too? That's an I don't know. So, so you keep, you, you keep mentioning the, the, you know, the courts, you no know, poor, which, which amendment has the worst jurisprudence currently today? <laughs> Second. The 14th probably, but that's not in the bill of rights. <laughs> I wouldn't disagree with you on the 14th. I think you know, we have a whole episode on the 14th. We're not a constitutional show. Not a constitutional show, but we might have to touch on the 14th later down the road because that's that's a hot, hot topic. Yeah. So, Cody, it's easy for you. The, the Second Amendment court screwed that that one. Well, so to be fair, right, there is way more bad jurisprudence surrounding the First Amendment just because right. it's so much more litigated. It's so much mm-hmm. denser. There's so much. I mean, can somebody please, can we stop saying separation of church and state? Oh. Like, can we yeah. stop? It's not in there. Look, read mm-hmm. it, please. I, I, I'll give you a $50 gift card to your choice if you can find that in the Constitution of the Bill of Rights for me. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know, this is a little, little court nerdy. The lemon test, that's still on the books, isn't it? But the court doesn't even use it anymore. Am I right that the lower courts have to use the lemon test, but the, the Supreme Court doesn't use it? Is it am I right on that? Kind sort of. There of. was a case that just dealt with that, um, dealing oh. with the Blainsburg Cross, and it basically it's gone. Yeah, they keep like they've eaten away at it slowly without a direct like reversal. Because and it was so nonsense. If if the litigants in a case can like distinguish themselves outside of the facts or kind of sidestep it, and like there's just there's a lot of confusing jurisprudence in my opinion on establishment of religion. Uh, but if I if I was oh man. <laughs> the amendment that threatens liberty. That's a really interesting question. It is. I think I would, Let's can I just, <laughs> I know, I know what my answer is. The militia clause from the second amendment. <laughs> because so it, took us, it just yeah. took like 200 years for them to actually look at what the framers were saying to mm-hmm. go, Oh wait, it isn't just for military usage. It isn't a collective. It's right. like so, there's a comma there that makes it a separate <laughs> clause. It's like, Grammar matters, Pete. Grammar matters so much. Yeah, what's uh, yours? The Tenth Amendment. Oh. Mm, and why? Um, even though the courts you no know, just kind of like ignore it, it is what permits police powers by the states. Mm. The, I'll read the text for you verbatim. The no, no, powers no, it is. not delegated to the United States Correct. by the Constitution nor prohibited by the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Okay, so are so you- without the Fourteenth Amendment, without the Fourteenth Amendment taking some of the Bill of Rights protections, the states can do darn near anything. Well, so that's not necessarily the system they envisioned, right? I mean, I think that's another big problem that's in the Bill of Rights is they have the Congress shall make no law, and everybody goes, "Well, that just means Congress, not the states." You don't get incorporation against the states of the amendments till way later down the road. Mm-hmm. Second Amendment it doesn't happen until. 
2010. Third Amendment, it actually happened in the 1980s, but everybody missed it. Third Amendment's my favorite, by the way. I Third Amendment's add. actually not fully incorporated. It only applies to a couple of circuits, doesn't it? Well, no, uh, ooh, I don't remember. I don't think it actually got to the Supreme Court yet. Did it not? Did that Second Circuit case not go up? The... I th- yeah, because I, th- I, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the Supreme Court said, this isn't worth our time. Ooh, uh, new career path for Cody. <laughs> Third Amendment lawyer. Be the only one in the country. Rank it up. Uh, th- two to three, two to three. <laughs> But, that, um, but you know, you know. For, so are you an anarchist? Do you not believe in state government? Uh, I don't like petty little bureaucrats. And the worst petty bureaucrats are the ones that are closest to my hometown. So would you have written it, the 10th Amendment, like just reserving the powers to the people and not included or the states? Uh yeah, yeah, I guess that's probably what it would have done. Uh, I would have just, I would have scratched the states. But, you know, the the whole... Constitutional Convention was maintaining state sovereignty. That's kind of like a big deal in constitutional history. I mean, but, that's kind of their focus. <laughs> yeah, just kind of, just kind of. You know, the whole Great Compromise. Um, but yeah, this this amendment. In you know, we talked about how dangerous it is to put things to words. Here's something putting to words: states getting a free check, basically on whatever they want to do, and so, that's that's kind of iffy to me here's where i'm going to question you though without the 10th amendment Mm -hmm. do the state do the people in those states not have those rights because the people eventually give the states police power when they enact their own individual constitutions by referendum sure sure so even without the 10th amendment don't the states have that right Let's see, this goes back to the whole question of I don't like any government of any level having any of that kind of in, invasive, invasive power. It's almost, like I want a, it's almost like I want the national constitution to say, states, bug off. You, if we can't do it, neither can you. Oh, so that's what I was getting at. That is what the constitution says, right? So there's a, lot, there's a really interesting argument around the supremacy clause. Ooh. And when all the states' constitutions are adopted, obviously, except for the original – 13 that were adopted, some of which were adopted prior to the the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. Thereafter, the state's constitutions are all adopted pursuant to the principles of the U.S. Constitution. The enabling acts passed by Congress always have that language or something similar to it, ensuring a Republican form of government and not repugnant to the ideas of the Constitution. There's There's a lot of theory around this idea of the supremacy clause. And I don't know that it's fully fleshed out with founding era, but their idea basically is saying, oh, no, 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 no. If we've specifically said that you can't do it, that means no government can do it because the constitution is the supreme law of the land and you cannot enact a law that is repugnant to the constitution. Oh, that's interesting. And it's, it, you actually see it in some jurisprudence in the early 1800s. Um, I only know this because in the Second Amendment world, eventually people are going to get tired of me talking about guns on here, but (laughs) there are a few early cases where state courts are looking at firearm or knife issues, and they specifically say, oh, you can't do this because the Constitution prohibits you from doing it. It's the supreme law of the land. So there was an, an early understanding that those prohibitions also applied to the states. I think this theory has a lot of legs to work on if the 10th amendment isn't there okay because it's, because the 10th amendment almost kind of counteracts that 
hey, we, we didn't prohibit it, and hey, we didn't, uh, the United States doesn't uh, have it, so states, you get to have it. But if that disappears, if that text disappears, then that, suprem- that, that variation on the supremacy clause has a little bit more room to, to grow. I man, 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 I just found a new essay topic for my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you are welcome. And if they find anything good, just send it over to me if you don't mind. <laughs> hey, you know what? If a college kid can find an ancient proposed amendment and get it passed in the 1990s, I might just get one of my kids to develop a whole new line of supremacy jurisprudence. Okay. But I think this is why the Bill of Rights is actually so interesting today, right? Mm -hmm. We spend too much time arguing about, like, so many people just say, again, like with the Constitution, oh, it's unconstitutional. So many people say, like, I have freedom of speech. I have blah. But they don't actually know what those words meant when Mm -hmm. the framers wrote them down. People don't know what the word, you know, speech meant, freedom of speech, you know, meant in... 1791 they have no idea they have no idea what the word arms meant or bear meant you know they don't understand those concepts papers in the fourth amendment and the whole canons idea yeah and the key here right is that we're not just saying that the only things that are protected are things from 1770 that's not what the, the framers meant we should be drawing modern analogs from those but the spirit of what those protections were should remain much the same. Your modern day papers, your documents that are stored electronically on your computer are still protected by the fourth amendment as they should be. You know, your modern arms are still protected by the second amendment as they should be. Speech via modern means is still protected just as it should be. Mm -hmm. And people pick and choose favorites and they choose court interpretations of certain things, which is fair. I get it. You know, who's going to listen to three people sitting on a podcast as opposed to (laughs) nine very intelligent jurists sitting on the Supreme court. Um, My, my colleague who's a a fellow and cap Cody, he says uh, he doesn't call them the nine justice because the nine ring rates. Oh, oh wow. (laughs) Yeah. He is. That's powerful. He is very, yeah. Yeah, we just have robed wraiths on the court. I'm like, ooh, damn, dude. Okay. You know, I'll I'll add, I have been the least anarchist here because somebody just advocated against state power. <laughs> I advocate about against power, man. Hey, you knew that you knew this coming in. Uh, have we strayed too far from the Bill of Rights? No, we talk yes. about jurisprudence, we talk about oh, this. <laughs> Chrissy, if we've strayed too far, how the hell do we get back on track? Right. No, I mean, I think that is the big question. (laughs) I don't think there's a lot of debate among conservatives of some vein, whatever kind of conservative (laughs) people may be, that, you know, we don't follow the Bill of Rights as it was intended, as it was written. I mean, you only have to look at the jurisprudence of privacy, for example, to see how far south the courts have taken it based on their own theories and what they wanted and the arguments that were made and, you know, arguments they didn't think the other side could make. And so they thought they had room to interpret it as they wanted. I mean, that's just one example is, is privacy. <laughs> jurisprudence is nothing like what the Bill of Rights actually laid out. And, and I think... I think that's a problem is there's misconceptions in, on the court themselves that then ha- are followed stare decisis. You know, we have to stick with our old decisions to keep the honor of the court. 
uh, in my opinion, it would be good if the Supreme Court parts a little bit with that doctrine. I mean, yes, past decisions have should have some weight. I, I believe any lawyer would say that they probably should. But the weight that they are sometimes given uh, when they were clearly wrong and you can clearly prove they're wrong and it's such a high hurdle to get over. Um, I did appreciate this current Supreme Court cycle, for lack of a better word. I know there's a better word to use that for yeah, that. Did Kavanaugh uh, just come out with like his whole uh, a whole uh, side opinion on um, yeah, no, that's what they did. A number of the judges actually laid out Kavanaugh being the one most people know about. Here is how you can challenge stare decisis. Here is what it would take to overturn previous decisions. And unfortunately, like you brought the Lemon versus Kurtzman test and a number of other ones, it actually is going to take the court overturning some of those decisions or Congress being bold enough to pass the kind of laws that would reverse the decision of the court, which a lot of people don't realize is possible but it is, it's a balance of power. If the court has strayed in many situations, Congress could remedy that by passing an appropriate law. Like so, the, I mean, in like the, the end, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that kind of example. Terrible yeah. example. That's a terrible, that's a terrible, I, right, I, I love it. <laughs> of I, course. It, you, it might, you might think it's a terrible law, but am I, is, am I right in understanding what you're saying, Chrissy, that yes. the courts can redirect the uh, excuse me, Congress can redirect the courts by passing law, you know, um, something like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act reinforcing, um, what is it, the compelling interest test. Is that what you're saying? Is that the idea that you're trying to draw? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a valid example as far as what Congress can do. And I think they just so rarely do it. But again, this, this term with the court, you saw a number of cases where the court's conservatives, like Gorsuch, even Kavanaugh, would actually threw it to Congress and said, if Congress would have dealt with this law, or if Congress ever wants to change this law, we could make a different decision. So you see some of the justices recognizing that give and take between the branches of government. If more of Congress actually recognize that, or if more judges were willing to say, we will reconsider these past ill-decided cases that are not really based in the true Bill of Rights, you would see change. And this just back to our Kavanaugh. last episode. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just Justice Kavanaugh has uh, one of the most important dissents of the term. Which and one? it's think? in Bostock. And everybody ignores it. Because you have this conversation around this case. So Bostock's the, the Title VII case dealing uh, with employment actions related to, on the basis of sex, and the question in that case was, uh, were transgender individuals. But you've got this, everybody's focusing on, you know, Gorsuch sided with the, the progressives, or you've got this battling textualism, which you do, which I also focused on and was really interesting, that, that battle between Gorsuch and uh, Alito both writing these very kind of textual opinions, looking at the text and definition and whatnot. But I think Kavanaugh has the most important opinion in that case. And one of, like I said, one of the most of the terms, he basically says there wouldn't be a problem here if Congress just did its job and passed a law. And Oh, by the way, court, it's not our job to do that. So maybe we shouldn't be talking about all of these topics all the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's better for us sometimes to just throw it back to Congress and, and this kind of goes back to the last episode where how the, the whole idea of the elastic clause, all the necessary profit, this wouldn't matter if Congress just took it, right? If they didn't yeah. relinquish so much to either the bureaucracy or to the courts, right? And the difference you get in the Bill of Rights, obviously, right, is that it's the opposite. 
It's that Congress or legislatures or states are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Mm. As well, I guess that is what they're doing in the Constitution. It's they're infringing on protections as opposed to exceeding their own power, right? So under the Constitution, the question is, is that necessary? Is that proper? Is it a tax? Blah, blah, blah. The question when you get to the Bill of Rights is, can they tread on your right to free speech? Can they infringe upon your right to bear arms? Can they infringe, you know, quarter police officers in your house? Do those count as soldiers? Uh, so it's kind of a little bit of a different take on it sometimes, which um, changes the way the jurisprudence looks because it's looking at how far can government go over as opposed to how much more can they do. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's good. I think a couple <laughs> random points that some people don't realize is one, states can sometimes give more liberty to their, and not give, but recognize uh, more liberty to their people than even the U.S. Constitution does. For example, Colorado does that on free speech. We have broader, what we call free speech protections than even the First Amendment, at least in jurisprudence, is understood to recognize. So, it's, it's worth checking out like if you if a certain right really matters to you like a second amendment right uh they all should matter but whichever one does if you live in a state does it give you extra protection uh to exercise your natural right in that way um and then the second thing i encounter way too often is people who don't know that the bill of rights protects you as opposed to governments not as opposed necessarily to your neighbor uh, for example, free speech, you guys have probably heard a ton of people always, they're like, oh, I have my free speech right to go into, you know, Walmart and say X, Y, Z. Like, I recently have heard someone, go, they wouldn't stop someone else from saying something that was not appropriate. It's like, oh, it's his free speech right to say it. It's like, not as opposed to you. You can, I can ask my friend to not have a certain topic of conversation. Walmart can come in and tell someone, hey, it's not allowed in our store, but it is the government's that has restrictions on how they right. deal with your speech. And I think a lot of people think they have a free speech right anywhere with anything they want. So I mean, and I'm getting into a specific amendment, but yeah, yeah. just understanding it protects us from government is super important. This feels like it's another, we need a better civic education system, right? This seems like another one of those, we need a better civic education, right? And, and I wonder if that's just gonna be the solution to most of the problems. So, on this one, I don't think it is. Is, Not, there, is there something else to there fulfill is. the founding vision? There is. You excited? I, I, am, <laughs> I am on, I am I on the edge of my seat. Civic education is always the right answer, right? Always. The more people know, the better educated they are, the better off we're going to be just as a society. Mm -hmm. If people understand and respect natural rights, you don't need a government to do anything. But here... I think that there's a lot of really important work happening in both courts and legislatures, because I think more and more state legislatures are starting to understand exactly what Christie's talking about. And they're starting to recognize that, hey, if we don't like the way that certain things are trending, we can build in protections. So Colorado, even though it's been much maligned, right, has TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, mm -hmm. which protects Coloradans from these like crazy complex tax bills from passing through without them being able to be parsed and understood. So right. Colorado passed that. A number of states in recent years have passed what we call constitutional carry, which means that if you are a resident of a state, 
you can legally carry a firearm concealed without a permit. Huh. So a number of states have recognized this. So there's been a lot of important work happening in legislatures, and they are starting to realize we can do these things, we can protect our citizens, and we can ensure that future generations are protected as well by passing constitutional amendments via the state system. So that's one side. I think that's massive. The other side is, I really do think that, and partly why I do what I do, self-shameless plug here, targeted litigation has been very important in this realm on all forms of, um, on all the amendments, focusing on getting rid of bad Supreme Court tests, getting rid of bad jurisprudence and seeing where there's weaknesses, seeing where there's people that are recognizing problems, right? We're talking about qualified immunity now again, and that hasn't been an important topic of conversation for, for ages. And we're talking about the problems of plea bargaining. That's a Seventh Amendment problem. I mean, you're talking about the difference between accepting a charge versus going before a, a, a jury of your peers. So targeted litigation is very important in this realm and is going to be even more important in coming years on focusing to ensure that there are good protections on individual rights. Okay. I mean, that, damn, that was a fantastic answer. Okay. So <laughs> I agree. I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can wrap this here. There is a legitimate concern that writing down the protections for your natural rights renders them in the public mind, the public psychology, that these aren't protections of natural rights, that these are grants of rights to, uh, to you from the government. And that's not a good thing. Yet, because of you know, the, the historical aspect of the Constitutional Convention, um, and because of just how common law can work when it's left to its own devices, if you don't have textual guardrails, textual protections, um, you might end up in a worse scenario than when you do have them, right? So on the whole, these protections are really, really, really important for us. And yes, we've got some really weird, nasty, bad jurisprudence on some of the bill of, uh, on some, on some of the uh, provisions in the bill of rights, right? No, we got the second amendment, we got the first one, so on and so forth. But really, when we look at the whole scale of the country, civic education, targeted litigation, and an active participation in your local politics, in your local uh, communities to say, yeah, I want guns more than California or wherever, so let's do constitutional carry. Or, you know, I don't think you should be spending my money as much. So. Tabor, the point being is that this problem of having a Bill of Rights is not nearly as big as not having them. On the whole, it's best to have a Bill of Rights. So, you know, we, we said at the beginning, a seemingly obvious answer, it is the obvious answer. We should have and we should maintain a Bill of Rights, if not reinforce them with better litigation, with better constitutional protections by the states. How's that sound to you guys? Did I, did I get that right? Did I summarize what, you, what, what, we, what we went over? Yeah, you're right on. I think you're dead on. I think if we have the Constitution we have, then we need the, the Bill of Rights we have. I mean, 
look, we could take some pot shots at some later amendments later on. I mean, I have a particular bone to pick with the 17th, but. <laughs> 17, 14, take, take your pick. You know, we, 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 we could go down the progressive list all day. But with that, ladies and gentlemen, I think we're going to end it here. I certainly have enjoyed my time with these two. I think they have with me. We will see you next time. I don't know what our topic is. I feel like I feel like I just got a hint of religious freedom aspects from Cody here. He's not a fan of the RFRA. So we, we might touch on that later. But whatever our topic is, it's going to be self-evident. It's going to be forgotten. And they're going to be something true. But with that, we'll see you next time.